Beloved, you are to persevere in your reading of the Scriptures. You are to persevere in your study of the Scriptures. You are to persevere in sitting under the preaching of the Word of God until your eyes are enlightened on whatever it is that you're struggling with. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Turn with me this morning, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. This morning, our public reading of Scripture from the New Testament, as always, is our sermon passage as we work together through the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, this morning, verses 22 through 30, the title of the message, Eyes Wide Open. Follow along, beginning in verse 22. Let us hear the Word of God together. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them, to tell no one about him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated and let us ask the Lord's help this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your scripture. We know it comes to us through holy inspiration. What we read are your very words and we have before us such a beautiful scene Another healing of our Lord, the healing of the blind man, and yet there's so much deeper truth in this passage. Please, Lord, give us eyes to see, for we are totally blind apart from Christ. We need the eyes of Christ to understand this truth. Help us this morning, Lord, we ask for your glory and for your glory alone, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As we read here this morning, this, this passage of um, the healing of this blind man, we need to understand a little bit about what was going on in ancient times. In ancient times, particularly the world of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century, blindness was boundless in society. It was found among all people groups. It was found among all ages of people of all cultures. This was likely due to bad hygiene practices, a lack of modern medicine, perhaps maybe a constant exposure to dusty regions like the Middle East. Jesus himself, of course, healed many blind people in the course of his ministry. To borrow the words of Job, Jesus was eyes to the blind. He was feet to the lame, Job 29 verse 15. He had great sympathy to the blind because the blind uh, were reduced to beggars. They couldn't hold down a job, they couldn't see, and even they were considered by some to be cursed by God. Even the disciples themselves viewed blind people as cursed by God. Due to this sort of stigma associated with blindness, the Bible often uses blindness constantly as an illustration of our own spiritual blindness. In fact, Scripture itself is described in Psalm 119, verse 105, as light itself. Jesus himself 
declared that he was the light of the world in John 8 and verse 12. We learn from this that it's only through the saving touch of Jesus, who is the light of the world, that the veil of spiritual darkness is removed from unbelieving hearts. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14, speaking about the Israelites, he says their minds were hardened for the, to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their eyes. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, the light of Christ, the gospel, the veil is removed. Otherwise, we are in darkness. The Apostle John describes Jesus in his opening words of his gospel as the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. John 1 verse 9. The true light coming into the world enlightens every man. This does not mean that every person will believe in Jesus. But it does mean that in his incarnation, he was the very embodiment of light. In his incarnation, he was the very fulfillment of God's light. The Bible is clear in Romans chapter 1 through general revelation in both creation and conscience that God has generally revealed himself to man. God has planted a knowledge about himself in the heart of every man. But general revelation will not lead to salvation. Salvation only comes when Jesus himself lifts the veil through the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of blind souls to see the Lord Jesus Christ. You reject the light of general revelation, and if you reject the light of Christ, you will be held culpable for your sin and you will be condemned. Romans 1 is very clear about that. Now the Old Testament predicted that when the Messiah came, both physical and spiritual eyes would be opened. Isaiah 42, 7, we read it earlier. And I will appoint you, speaking about the Messiah, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Isaiah, in particular, was keen on that theme of light, that when the Messiah came, he would be none other than a light to the nations. That was Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 29, um, Isaiah says, verse 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 32 and verse 3, Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, over and over and over again. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Those who are bound in darkness is the idea there. So when the Messiah came, it was clear in the Old Testament, as predicted, that he would be a light to the nations. Now that is somewhat ironic, because in contrast to the religious leaders and many among the crowds, they did not have the light, did they? And when the light came, they rejected the light, and Jesus was clear that it was to the disciples alone who had been enlightened. That's why Jesus says, back in Mark chapter 4, that it was to the disciples alone that the secrets of the kingdom of God are revealed. Verse 11, he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in a parable, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. They would only see with physical eyes, they would only hear with physical ears, but not spiritual eyes and not spiritual ears, because to them was not revealed the light of Christ. That's what Jesus says. But even the disciples who had the secrets of the kingdom revealed to them still had fuzzy vision. They did not have 20-20 vision. They needed guided by the hand of God to see more clearly because, as we saw last week, they were too heavily influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees, by the leaven of Herod and the Sadducees. We saw last week that the leaven of the Pharisees points to the legalism of works righteousness. 
The leaven of Herod would have been the leaven of the Sadducees. That would have been the, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Rome. Uh, the disciples had been influenced by, by both types of leaven. They were part of the Jewish religion, and because the Pharisees had such a massive influence, they were even influenced by the ways of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the civil authorities out of fear regarding what Christ's kingdom may look like. To be sure, they had received the sovereign, salvific touch of Jesus. They were true followers, but they needed their faith strengthened. They needed their eyes sharpened. They still saw fuzzy. As we'll see in this text, Jesus helps the disciples see clearer. It is Jesus' repeated ministry touch on the disciples that gradually strengthens their faith so that they have a sturdy conviction upon which the church of Jesus Christ can be built and we can learn from this. But before Jesus strengthens the eyes of the disciples, he strengthens the eyes of a man who is physically blind. The passage before us, therefore, is a living illustration, an object lesson of sorts, revealing to us the power of Jesus to cure both outer and inner spiritual darkness. And it opens to us in two riveting scenes. First of all, we see the restoration of physical sight and secondly, the restoration of spiritual sight. Notice with me, first of all, in verses 22 through 26, the restoration of physical sight. We read this in verses 22 through 26, this scene of Jesus healing this blind man at Bethsaida. And there are three elements to this, this physical restoration of sight. There is a request, there is a response, and there is a requirement. Notice first the request. Verse 22, it says that Jesus and the disciples came to Bethsaida. Now, they had been on one side of the Sea of Galilee, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're now going to the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee. They're coming to a place called Bethsaida, and that would have been the same area in which Jesus had fed the multitude's bread, the 5,000 Jewish households. In fact, the word Bethsaida literally means house of the fisher. They are approached, uh, verse 22 says, by some people who brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Who were these people? They're really not identified, but they are probably Gentiles. And it's worthy to note that it seems they had faith and the man didn't because they are the ones that begged Jesus to heal their friend. This is the request, a healing by the power of Jesus. So there is some, at least at a superficial level, a degree of faith. I would argue not a deep level of faith, and you'll see why in a moment, but nevertheless, a type of faith that requests Jesus to heal him. And notice the language, it's healing that involves just the touch of him, verse 22. There has been, up to this point, no specific incident of Jesus healing a blind man until this point. There have been general summaries, like chapter 1, verse 34, he healed many who were sick, various diseases, cast out demons. Uh, healing summaries like chapter 3 and verse 10, he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Chapter 6 and verse 56 tells us that wherever he came in villages and cities or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Surely among those crowds, there were blind people, but Mark gives only this healing. Two things worthy of note. They just seek a touch of Jesus because so great and obvious was his power. So great and obvious did Jesus heal completely, consistently, and effortlessly that they just wanted him to touch the man. And secondly, as I just said, I don't think this man had the type of faith of another blind man, namely, namely blind Bartimaeus. Go with me to chapter 10 and verse 47, just quickly. There was a blind man. He's called a beggar in verse 46. He's sitting by the roadside, and verse 47 says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he couldn't see, he only heard, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but it didn't stop him. He cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Blind Bartimaeus, a man of deep faith. There's no words from this man in verse 22. No sign of faith 
from this man. Bartimaeus' faith was large. This man's faith is lacking. His faith needs strengthened. That's what you need to see. The request comes from his friends, not from him. Perhaps he didn't even believe that Jesus could heal him. And that takes us from the request now to the response in verses 23 through 25. And there's several little details here in verse 23 I want you to see beginning with Jesus' sympathy. Verse 23 says, He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Now it's interesting that the people were a guide to this blind man. They had enough faith, at least on a superficial level, to bring him to Jesus because they knew that Jesus had the power to heal. This is in contrast of course, to the religious leaders. Jesus is clear they are blind guides of the blind. And Jesus said, if you follow them, they're blind and you'll both fall into a pit. Leviticus 19.14 says, you shall not put a stumbling block before the blind. That is effectively exactly what the religious leaders were doing. These people had enough sense to at least bring this poor fellow to Jesus. They understood Deuteronomy 27, 18, curse be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. They have more sympathy than the religious leaders, but what I want you to note is the sympathy of Jesus. He takes this man by the hand and he leads him out of the village. What a picture of sympathy. Jesus, using his sovereign hand to strengthen this man's faith, taking him by the hand. I've often imagined what they talked about on that walk. Did the blind man tell Jesus what his life was like before he went blind? Because I think it's clear he didn't always, he wasn't always blind. Whatever it was, whatever the conversation was, Jesus made the man increasingly trust him along the way. Now, Jesus was unlike the aloof and unsympathetic religious leaders. No, Jesus would pastorally walk this man along until he was convinced of his care for him, his sympathy for him as this man Walked. Jesus was walking with him through his valley of dark despair. What a beautiful picture of the sympathy of Jesus. He was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. And just a, a reminder on the side, this should mark all of God's people. All of God's people should have this same sort of care and sympathy. I've lived through the years pastoring so many different people in so many different places that I carry the weight of the burdens of so many of those that I used to pastor, even just this past week, finding out a sweet, precious lady last night who, uh, who was a member of one of my churches passed away, knowing she's no longer here. She's with the Lord. She's in heaven. I had uh, just this past week someone call me because they're seeking a job. They're recently just graduated from college. They need a reference and it's my duty to minister to them. Received a phone call last night from a lady that used to come to our church with her husband and he's in ICU, he's on a ventilator. And all of these burdens that people carry and us in our feeble attempt to help other people, sometimes we're cold and heartless, never Jesus. Always, always willing to help, offering a sympathetic hand. But we not only see Jesus' sympathy and that he took this man by the hand, we also see his spittle yet again. We saw that he spit to heal the deaf man earlier, but notice verse 23, when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? Here again, Jesus spits. Remember that back in chapter 7 and verse 31, the healing of the deaf man. He put his fingers in his ears, he spit, touched his tongue. There, spittle on the tongue. Here, spittle on the eyes. What in the world is Jesus communicating? Well, he's simply using a sort of sign language, a sort of primitive communication to tell this man, you can trust me, I'm going to perform a miracle on your eyes. And as Jesus did that, this man's trust obviously was growing. He had said nothing to Jesus at all until Jesus took him by the hand to walk him away from the crowd now he must be trusting Jesus because who in their right mind allows a stranger to spit on their eyes? Obviously, he knew Jesus had sympathy and could help. And what normally would appear as grotesque, sand-encrusted, diseased eyes being spit upon becomes a beautiful picture of faith in this man. We've seen Jesus' sympathy, his spittle, but now notice his strength. The text says in verse 23, he laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? The strength of Jesus' touch. You know, a human touch communicates comfort, 
but it also communicates strength, sometimes in ways that words can fail. And here this man feels the comfort of the divine and human hand of Jesus, the strength of the divine and human hands of Jesus, more than likely laid on the shoulders or upon the head of this man. What is Jesus doing? He's calling out of the man a faith, an inner faith with his outer touch. He's touching this man, wanting to draw out his faith because he asks that question, do you see anything? Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand that Jesus wasn't asking that question because he didn't know the answer to it. Of course, he knew the answer to it. It was a way to elicit faith, to bring the faith out of this poor man. Interestingly, there are eight, count them, eight different Greek words used in verses 23 through 25 for the word seeing. Because Mark wants to emphasize sight, seeing, vision, in contrast to blindness. There is a deeper reality here. In the Old Testament we read, hands were laid upon people for various reasons. First of all, they were dedicating sacrifices. Hands were laid by the priests on the animal. If you were going to install Levites to office, you laid their hands on them and consecrated them. If you were going to bless someone, you laid hands on them and consecrated them. For example, in Jesus' ministry, he took the children up into his arms and blessed them. Blessed them. Laying on of hands thus conveys, listen to this, consecration. Consecration. Jesus, by laying his hands on this man, is blessing him, consecrating this man from physical blindness to eventually the blessed reality of restored sight and all just by the touch of Jesus. Do you see anything? I, I think that is an echo back to chapter 8, verse 17. What did Jesus ask the disciples in the boat? He said, having eyes, do you not see? Having eyes, do you not see? He just asked the disciples that. Now they're out of the boat and he's asking this man essentially the same exact question. And notice the response of the man, verse 24. He looked up and he said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Three different Greek words for vision are used here in verse 24. Anablepsos, blepo, and horo. Now, obviously, the man could see at some point in his life because it says he looked up and he saw people and said they look like trees. This reveals that he knew what people look like. He knew what trees look like. This man wasn't born blind, which in many ways made his condition worse. He used to be able to see, now he can't. Do you see anything? Well, I see what it looks like people walking around. His outward vision, this is what you need to catch, was still blurry. It was only partially restored. So notice what happens next. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes. Another human touch of the divine again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. His sight was restored, translates diablepo, which literally means an unimpeded clarity of vision. In contrast to the blepo of verse 24, where he simply saw fuzzy, now he diablepo, he sees with 20-20 vision. Unimpeded crystal clarity, sharpness, no fuzziness, perfection in his vision. I think perhaps, I can't prove it, not only did he have physical eyes that could see, but he had spiritual eyes of faith as well. This was not merely a healing of outer vision. This was a healing of inner spiritual vision or inner spiritual blindness where his blindness now gives way to sight. He can see physically and I think perhaps he can also see spiritually. Jesus has brought the faith out of him. It's through the touch of Jesus that he brought the man along and strengthened his faith first first by the hand, then by his hands upon him. So we move from the request and the response now to the requirement. Verse 26, and Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Very strong language, a command. Don't you dare enter the village. Go home, go home. 
Now, why was it that Jesus, first of all, took this man by the hand to lead him away? Now we know. Now we know. God had judged Bethsaida. God had judged them. He did not want his light going to them. He had judged them. So he says, do not even enter the village. Just go home. If you go with me over to Luke chapter 10, we'll see this clearly. Luke chapter 10 and verse 13. Jesus says to the unrepentant cities, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. They had rejected Christ. So he requires this man to go home, not the village. The village was under judgment. This man was no longer under judgment. His blindness, both inner and outer, gave way to sight. He was one of the Gentiles that glorified the God of Israel, as Matthew describes it in Matthew chapter 15. He was similar to the demoniac, right? This man that Jesus told to go home to his people and report what great things the Lord had done for him. That's essentially what Jesus is telling this man. He once could see, then he lost his sight. And through the touch of Jesus, his sight was there as Jesus strengthened his faith to see that Jesus could heal him. But before you get too wrapped up in this man's newfound sight, he's not the focus of this narrative. Mark is just describing this beautiful scene for a very specific reason. Did you find it strange that the healing of this man took two tries by Jesus? When Jesus asked the question, do you see anything? It's not because he limited himself in knowledge. And when it took him two tries to heal this man, it's not because he was limiting himself in power. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is omnipotent. First, he lays his hands on him, and the man only sees fuzzy. It looks like people are trees walking around. Takes Jesus a second try. Why was that? Well, as I said earlier, it was to help bring along the man's faith. But it was also, listen to this, to help bring along the faith of the disciples. Back in chapter 8 and verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Is anybody home? Can you not see what I have done? Can you not see what I have said and who I am and what I have come to do, what my purpose is, you're my disciples. What was Jesus saying in chapter 8, verse 18? Jesus was asking them about their vision of him. The disciples needed help seeing. Jesus heals this man in two stages as an object lesson to the disciples. Now I'm here to tell you, perhaps it went over their head, I don't know. But Mark is writing to make sure it doesn't go over our heads. He is, both of these passages, 22 through 26, 27 through 30, are parallel. They're very similar. They have a request, a response, and a requirement. They are similar. They are the same thing. One, a physical restoration of sight. One, a spiritual restoration of sight. Mark does not want you to lose that. The disciples are true followers of Christ. They are not in total darkness, but they have weak faith and they need helped by the hand of Jesus to be strengthened in their faith to see his full identity. Who is he? What will he do? This will become not merely an eye-opening experience for the former blind man, but for the disciples. Jesus would take them by the hand. Jesus would guide them away, as it were, to help them see Remember, the disciples purposely only brought one loaf with them in the boat, chapter 8, verse 11. That was a real low point because we saw that that was purposeful defiance. They had been influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees that had a sort of kingdom idea of Jesus um, that was focused on ethnic Israel. They were bigots, the apostles. They were sick and tired of Jesus ministering to Gentiles, so they were being influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees. 
And they were being influenced uh, by the leaven of Herod uh, because Herod was um, a machine of Rome. And to go against those civil authorities was suicidal. They didn't want that suffering. They didn't want that persecution. They wanted to sit on the 12 tribes of Israel and rule and to reign. They wanted their enemies defeated. Too much leaven was influencing them. That was a real low point to try to go against Jesus' mission for, to pursue the Gentiles by bringing one piece of, one loaf of bread, knowing that if Jesus had bread around, he could multiply it to more Gentiles so they only brought one loaf after they had seven huge hamper baskets full of bread from the last feeding. That was defiance. That was the low point for the disciples. But the low point is followed by the high point, by the climax of Peter's confession, as we're going to see in the verses to follow. This might help you a little bit. In sports, we have a, a certain expression that we use to describe athletes, usually who are trying to adjust to a higher level of play. It doesn't matter what the sport is. They could be going also from high school to college, from college to pro, from the D team to the C team, the C to the B, the B to the A. It doesn't matter. But when they are adjusting to the speed of the game that they're not used to, and when things finally start to click, the expression is, so-and-so finally saw the cheetahs. They finally saw the cheetahs. Things slowed down to them to such a degree, the game didn't slow down itself, but in their mind and in their eyes it slowed down enough that what was once speeding past them and blurring past them and they couldn't see, now they could see. They could see a cheetah go by in slow motion. It clicked. They understood the strategy. They understood the formation. They understood the tactics. They got it. In this episode, the disciples finally see the cheetahs. What is Jesus' game plan? What is he about? Why did he come into the world? Who is he? They needed a second touch by Jesus, just like the blind man did, in order to see more clearly. And I want to say this before we move on to point number two. We also need our spiritual vision to be put in focus. Not one of us here this morning has arrived to perfect theology. Not one of us here this morning has arrived at perfect sanctification there are things that we still need to understand. There are things that we still need to grow in. One of the chief marks of a true believer is humility and recognizing that. That's why Paul prays, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Listen to this. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That's why Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We need the Spirit of God to open our eyes this morning to see what the Lord is doing in our lives, to understand His truth better, to see the cheetahs. The disciples finally see this, and so we move from the physical blindness restored or the restoration of physical sight to the restoration of spiritual sight, verses 27 through 30. And just as there were three elements involved in the the physical restoration of sight, there's three elements in this spiritual restoration of sight, a request, a response, and a requirement. Notice with me, first of all, the request in verse 27. After the healing, verse 27 says, Jesus traveled on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was some 25 miles from Bethsaida and uh, to the north, likely about a day's walk, about a day's walk. It's a long walk. No doubt uh, the disciples along the way rehearsed the joy of the man that had just been healed, how excited he was. He could now see. I don't know what else Jesus spoke about with the disciples. Maybe he taught them from the Old Testament. I'm not sure. But as they approached Caesarea Philippi, which uh, was located at the foot of Mount Hermon near a large spring that fed into the Jordan River, Jesus asked his disciples an important question. Notice it. He said, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Matthew says this took place in the district of Caesarea Philippi, so they weren't quite there to Caesarea Philippi. And Luke tells us that, listen to this, along the way Jesus had been praying. 
Perhaps it was only the disciples that were having a discourse on the walk while Jesus silently prayed to his father, maybe leading them from a distance. I don't know. If he was praying, which he was, Luke says he was, what was he praying about? Well, perhaps that the disciples' spiritual sight would become clearer because they were just like this blind man. They had been touched by Jesus. They were true followers, but things were blurry. Things were fuzzy. They weren't connecting the dots. Jesus asked the disciples this question, which went against normal rabbinical method. Normally, a student asked the rabbi questions. Jesus was no normal rabbi. And just like he didn't ask the blind man if he could see because he didn't know, he's not asking the disciples, who do people say that I am because he doesn't know? He's trying to elicit their faith. Do you see that? He's trying to draw out of them their faith. He's stirring up deeper faith so that the eyes of their hearts can see his true identity. The question was a request that though couched in a way seeking an answer reflective of what others thought of him, it was actually a leading question, wasn't it? A leading question to the true question, verse 29, who do you say that I am? So we move from the request to the response, verses 28 and 29. First of all, verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. That's what the people thought. Well, maybe this is John the Baptist. You remember Herod thought in chapter 6 that John the Baptist, um, I'm sorry, that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Herod had chopped John the Baptist's head off. Is this a reincarnation of John the Baptist, this Jesus? Others, verse 28 says, uh, thought that he was Elijah. You remember Malachi 4, 5, God promised to send another Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And many people confused Jesus as being that Elijah. In actual fact, John was that Elijah. They saw blurry. Their theology was not clear. And others, that he's simply one of the prophets. Now we'll give the people credit because they were perceptive enough to see that Jesus spoke with the authority of God. They recognized him at least as a prophet or within the category of prophethood. And prophets in Old Testament Israel were huge figures. They were like sports heroes in our culture. They were looked up to immensely. Remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God promised to send a greater prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and you shall listen to him. You shall listen to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Surely Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. But the people didn't understand how that fulfillment of prophecy also fulfilled the identity of the Messiah. The disciples weren't completely blind. They recognized Jesus for who he was more than the crowds. Do you remember that uh, when Andrew was converted, he went to his brother Philip. I'm sorry, his brother Peter. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Nathaniel made that great confession, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. John the Baptist recognized him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Peter recognized him as the Christ. And, and John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000 plus and the great and infamous desertion of some of the disciples, Jesus says, uh, are you going to go too? Peter says, where will we go? You are Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But they're waffling in their faith, aren't they? Listen to this. They understand, they understand the person of Jesus. He's the Messiah. But what they fail to recognize 
is his purpose. What is his purpose? Well, his purpose is the engrafting of Gentiles into the covenants based upon their faith in Christ. His purpose is suffering and rejection by the religious establishment and Rome. His purpose is not setting up a physical kingdom to defend ethnic Israel and defeat Rome. This is where they needed their eyes of faith restored, focused, and sharpened. They were better than the crowds because they recognized Jesus was better than a prophet. He's not just some prophet. He's the prophet of all prophets. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. But their view of Jesus was black and white. That's how we could put it. Jesus needs to add color to their interpretation of the Old Testament so they can see. I found out I was colorblind many, many, many years ago and my family rented a pair of those colorblind glasses from the library one time and I put them on outside and could not believe for the first time what true color looked like. It was unbelievable. Standing there in awe at what you all see and I don't see. The disciples could see some color. It wasn't all black and white but it was fuzzy. Jesus is going to use a question to elicit their faith because as they think about the categories of who others thought Jesus was, they're wrestling in their own mind about the identity of Jesus. They're looking back to what happened in the boat and their rebuke for not bringing the bread. They understand his person, but is his purpose exactly what he's saying? And they're having to wrestle with this. And so Jesus, then in the midst of that mental wrestling and theological wrestling, we see in verse 29, he turns to them and asks them, but who do you say that I am? You can't see it in the English. But in the Greek, the word you is in the emphatic position. That simply means it is the first word of the sentence. The first word that came out of Jesus' mouth was you. And it's likely he used his finger to point. Who do you say that I am? That's the issue. If you were italicizing something or putting something in bold, you're emphasizing it. The emphasis is upon your confession. Who do you say that I am? Now that was a question that Mark sought to answer from the beginning, right? Turn back with me to Mark chapter 1. What does Mark say at the beginning of this gospel? Well, he says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. That's who He is. The Son of God. But up to this point, the disciples haven't confessed that. Demons have confessed it. Disciples haven't confessed it. As a matter of notation, the disciples did quite the opposite. After Jesus calmed the storm, they're in the boat, they're filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They asked the question, who then is this? So they're struggling. But on behalf of the 12, Peter boldly speaks. And he says here, in verse 29, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. The Christ. You are the anointed one. Matthew has a fuller confession. Matthew 16, 16 on this occasion. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That answers Mark's beginning verse. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christos is the Greek word for Christ. It's the word for Messiah. Its Hebrew counterpart means the anointed one. Of course, in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were the anointed ones, but the true anointed one came to be associated with the final king, that is the Messiah. Please don't miss the significance of this. This is different than at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when Andrew says to Peter, we've we found, we found the Messiah. Because even at the beginning, they recognized him as the Messiah. They recognized his person. But it took him a long time to recognize his purpose. What exactly would he do? 
This is Peter saying, I know what he'll do because I know who he is. He is the Christ and he is the son of the living God. He is God in human flesh. And whatever he says, Moses says, we must listen to him. And it was wrong for us to only bring one loaf of bread. And it was wrong for us to resist him. This is a confession and a repentance all wrapped up in one. The crowds partially got it right, but Peter gets it fully right. He recognizes the identity. Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, was saying simply this, Jesus, you are the promised one of God, prophesied from the beginning all the way back in the Old Testament in Genesis 3. You are the seed of the woman who then became the seed of David, the son of the living God, who came to rescue needy sinners. What a great confession the climax of the book it's the climax of mark's gospel right after the low point the climax and as great as it is as great as it is and jesus opening their spiritually fuzzy eyes <laughs> peter couldn't take any credit for it back in matthew chapter 16 and matthew's account of this what a high that would have been to make that confession probably felt really good for peter to get that out after all the doubts. But as soon as he said it, Matthew tells us, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And I see a smile coming across his face. And then Jesus says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't think this up yourself. It didn't come from your flesh and blood. It didn't come from your puny little brain. It didn't come from others. My Father revealed this to you. Well, that would be true, right? Because Jesus said in John 6, that the Father has to draw his true children to himself sovereignly, takes the sovereign touch of God. Many will see, but not see. Many will hear, but not hear because the light hasn't come to them. The Father had revealed it to him. Of course, Jesus had revealed it to him. Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Father revealed this to Peter. The Son revealed this to Peter. The Holy Spirit revealed this to Peter. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals to us the deep things of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That's why the Peter and the apostles finally got it. They had been enlightened. The crowds hadn't. Just as Jesus gradually brought the blind man to sight, so too did he gradually take the disciples to a place where they could see clear, to have the sort of sturdy conviction of you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, I don't know why. Maybe so the church could be built. The foundation of the church could be built on the apostles and prophets. How could the church be built by the apostles if they didn't have a sturdy conviction? This is a sturdy conviction. Jesus says that he will build the church and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. Nothing can conquer the church when the church's confession is this. It is Christ. And you need to know this morning that if you have eyes to see Christ, you can't take credit for it. You cannot take credit for it. It took the touch of Jesus. And if you have loved ones that don't see Christ and have rejected the gospel, it matters not how much you witness to them. They will not see unless the Spirit of God touches them. It's not up to your strength. It's not up to flesh and blood. The Father must reveal it to them. The Son must reveal it to them. The Spirit must reveal it to them. Our glorious triune God. But this restoration of spiritual sight takes us from the request, verse 27, the response, verses 28 and 29, now to the requirement. There's another requirement, verse 30. 
And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Isn't that parallel to verse 26? He said to the blind man, go home and don't enter the village. In other words, don't open your mouth, don't speak. Same language. It's a parallel. He strictly charged them. Why is that? Well, because though their faith had grown, listen to this, it still had more growing to do. I mean, how in the world could they go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God and of the gospel to build the church unless they were ready to embrace Jesus as the suffering Messiah? They weren't at that point yet. How do I know that? Well, skip ahead. Verse 31. What happens right after this climax? Well, another letdown. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. After three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, there's no way around it. This is the way it's going to be. And Peter just made this confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to listen to you. We're not going to defy you anymore. And what happens? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him? You've got to be kidding me. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He looked at the disciples, so they saw what he did, and he looked at Peter, and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here you go again, Peter. Influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees and Herod. I must suffer. I must suffer because this is key to the atonement. It's key to your salvation. I mean, if Jesus turned them loose now to go and preach the good news of the kingdom and they went in the villages and the cities and everywhere and proclaimed that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, it would take no time before the leaven of the Pharisees would seep back in, the leaven of the Sadducees and Herod, the enthusiasm of the crowd to overtake them and to try to convince them that Jesus was this sort of political type of savior. They were not ready yet. They still needed their faith strengthened. This is, um, this is a living illustration, isn't it? A living illustration of physical blindness. A living illustration of spiritual blindness. Spiritual sight being restored. An object lesson for the disciples, but also an object lesson to us, right? It's meant for us. I don't know if the disciples made the connection between Jesus eliciting faith from the blind man and him being able to see and the parallel of him eliciting faith from the disciples so they could see spiritually. But I know this, by the time that Mark wrote this gospel, Peter was his primary source and Peter saw the connection then. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see this connection. Remember, Mark is writing with theological purpose. He's not writing random events. He's very limited in his scope. He's very clear and to the point about what he's trying to make regarding the ministry of our Lord. Jesus heals a blind man. Jesus used that, uses that as an occasion to be an object lesson and the Spirit of God wants you to see that this morning. But what does it teach us? What does it teach us? Four little things. Number one, it teaches us something about the power of God. It teaches us something about the power of God. As I said earlier, he must open eyes, right? He must open eyes. It's not your faith that will save your children. It's not your faith that will save your parents or loved ones. It's not your evangelism that saves other people. It doesn't matter who you talk to, how long you talk to them, how much you talk to them, you cannot convince them in flesh and blood. So when we witness to the world, we recognize it's not in our power that changes the way that we engage the world, right? Jesus was always harsh with the religious leaders because they saw, they just refused to accept. The Gentiles were ignorant. They needed taught. They needed brought along. Jesus was patient. Jesus was gentle. Even Jesus himself understood that it was a work of God to open their eyes. How much truer for us. We learn something here about the power of God when we engage unbelievers. He must open their eyes. We share the gospel with them. We pray for them, but it's up to the sovereign work of God. 
not according to flesh and blood. Secondly, we learn something about the patience that we are to have toward others. This sort of follows what I said. This passage teaches us about the power of God. It teaches us about the patience that we are to have toward others. I I think this is especially true with respect to teachers in the church. Uh, The Bible says that teachers are to patiently teach others, bring them along. That's one of the challenges when you plant a church, particularly when you plant a church that's not part of a denomination because you're trying to get everyone on the same page. And that can be a hard thing because people come from different backgrounds, different expectations, different understandings. Jesus was so patient with the disciples, wasn't he? So patient. He would rebuke them every now and then, but it was always out of love, always out of tenderness, ever patient. We need to be patient with others. So we learn something here about power, the power of God, something about patience. We also learn something here about perseverance. In John chapter 16, Jesus said to the apostles, I'm going to send the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. The scriptures, as I said earlier, are described as light. They are illumination. The Word and the Spirit together help us understand truth. They guide us into all truth. Beloved, you are to persevere in your reading of the scriptures. You are to persevere in your study of the scriptures. You are to persevere in sitting under the preaching of the word of God until your eyes are enlightened on whatever it is that you're struggling with. Whatever the subject may be, it may be a fine point of theology. It may be a point of application in your own spiritual life that will help your sanctification, but you must be a student of Scripture. You must persevere in the reading and the studying of Scripture, sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. Jesus has promised that the Spirit will guide us into all truth, just as Jesus guided this blind man by the hand, just as Jesus guided the disciples to see. Jesus will guide you in your growth to see the things that you have questions about to see. But you are to look and you are to pray. So it teaches us something about the power of God, these verses, something about the patience that we are to have, something about perseverance, and finally, something about purpose. To put it to you this way, God will use you when you are prepared for the task that he has called you to. And you won't be prepared for the task he has called you to until you see as clearly as possible that you are serving in that task with the right motivation and for the right purposes. That was the apostles, right? Boy, they were eager. Boy, they were zealous. But they could be dangerous with that zeal. They had so much growth to do. God would use them mightily, right? Ephesians 2, they are the foundation of the church along with the Old Testament prophets. But they needed to see as clearly as possible to serve the purposes of that they would live out for God's glory. The same is true with us. God will humble us along the way. He will use things in our lives to prepare us to make our vision clearer so we can see, so we can do, so we can be what God has called us to be. We're all work in progress. So we humbly submit to that, trusting in Christ, trusting that God is at work in our lives to prune us, to make us more like Christ, to strengthen our faith so we can live for his glory, being prepared as a useful vessel in his kingdom. To God be the glory, let us pray. Father, we thank you for, Lord, these verses that give to us in such picture clarity, sharpness. Lord, not only your identity as the Christ, the son of the living God, but also, Lord, the way that you work with your disciples, patiently, tenderly, helping us, guiding us to see clearly, Lord, what we so often don't see. Help us to persevere. We know that you are preserving our faith. You are helping us to see what we can't see apart from the illuminating power of the Spirit of God. You know the struggles, the anxieties, the fears, the challenges in this sanctuary this morning. We pray that there would be the comforting hand of Christ as it were, laid upon the shoulders of all, all those here to consecrate, bless them, set them apart, giving them spiritual sight where they need to see. We thank you for your truth. Uh, we love your truth. and We pray that it would sanctify us for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com.